This is episode number 157, Understanding and Eliminating Incivility, with Sejal Takar. Welcome, my name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to make a brief announcement and invite all of our listeners to our upcoming virtual event called Survive to Thrive, Your Past Does Not Determine Your Future. This is an event that will be taking place on July 26, hosted from 11 a.m. Central Time to 3 p.m. Central Time, where you'll get a chance to hear from speakers from all over the country on topics including facing your fears, breaking your bias, and reinforcing your potential. If you would like to know more details about this upcoming experience, go ahead and visit our website at overcomingodds.today forward slash survive to thrive, your past does not determine your future. Also, if you like what you heard in any of the previous episodes, consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can hear these inspiring and courageous conversations. Now, let's get back to the show. Well, happy Friday. I'm glad we figured this out. Yeah. <laughs> um. So the, the topic in the conversation I think you and I wanted to have was around about incivility, not instability, something that I clearly struggled with <laughs> in, in identifying for quite some time. And I'm kind of curious to know, maybe to start off this particular conversation, like what is incivility to begin with? And how did you get into that space from your experience? Sure. Um, so yeah, I, I gave myself, you know, I started up my business a couple of years ago and I call myself the chief stability officer. Um, mm-hmm. And and really it, it comes from having an employment law background, working with employers on cases dealing with harassment and discrimination. One of the things that I realized early on in my career was a lot of times um, there are people that are well-intentioned at work And then they're faced with these situations and they don't know how to react. A Mm. lot of times it was incivility. So the way that I kind of did, and you can read a lot of different books on this and there's lots of different definitions. The way that I define incivility is sort of, and it's a spectrum of behaviors, right? So anything from rude, being rude or dismissive to somebody all the way up to abusive conduct, bullying, to discrimination or harassment. So it's anywhere in that spectrum of behaviors. Mm-hmm. And what I would also add to that is um, microaggressions, right? So behaviors stemming from your unconscious bias. I also think that leads to a lot of incivility in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So that's how I define it. Um, I think it's important for us to understand really why incivility is on the rise. And I think that a lot of people have this idea that, well, you know, I ran into this one situation all the time where somebody would be like, well, I was just making a joke. I didn't intend to harm somebody. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think I just wanted to say this at the beginning that incivility is really in the eye of the recipient, right? It's that person's perception. So mm-hmm. even if the person didn't intend to harm that person, I mean, really, it's incivility is oftentimes is not malicious. It's because somebody lacks awareness of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to say that because a lot of times people are like, well, I don't mean to be incivil when I go to work. And I'm like, I'm sure, but it's not really what your intention was. It's that you engaged in some behavior that led this other person, the recipient, the person on the other side, who then they viewed it as being something that was violating their boundaries. Yeah. How do you see a lot of the skills and practices that you can incorporate within the workplace when it comes to being civil to maybe outside of the workplace? Like what is, are the behaviors the same or are there differences in behaviors? No, they're, I mean, they're pretty much the same. A mm-hmm. lot of the stuff that I talk about is could apply to work or outside of work. The behaviors are always the same. It's just that when you're at work, you're going to have certain parameters and guidelines that you have to act within, right? So when you're at home and you say something rude to your roommate or your significant other and how you're going to react with that is going to be very different than when you're at work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in the workplace, we we look at workplace culture and the culture is really defined as what the organization, what the people, what the organization allows or tolerates. So a lot of times when I'm working with organizations, we have to look at what is, what are the people feeling? Because sometimes the behavior or the in, in civil behavior goes on so long that it becomes a normal for that organization. Mm-hmm. And that's where you have to do a lot of work to kind of unlearn all of that to, to recreate or, or to actually foster an environment where there's the way that I look at it is we really want to create workplaces of dignity and respect for all. So that's what mm-hmm. I'm actually trying to do is help organizations create that culture. Mm-hmm. Now, take me a step back. I, I know you spoke about your experience and everything that comes with it. Did you experience that this personally that you wanted to say, hey, this is something I want to change? And then the other part, maybe you've touched upon briefly is what does it actually mean by the role that you have right now, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is chief civility officer? What, is, what does that mean? Yeah. Well, so if I go, if I back up, um, when I grew up, Um, I I dealt with discrimination and harassment growing up. So for me, um, you know, it was a a personal thing. I always knew I wanted to do some kind of social justice as I got older. Um, When I went to law school, I I really hadn't planned on actually doing employment law. It kind of fell into my lap, but it became the perfect situation for me because it's too hard to deal with these issues unless they're contained. And at least in the workplace, Mm -hmm. I can make a difference. And so as a lawyer, that's what I dealt with was cases where people were being harassed or discriminated against. And so it really matched up with my what I had gone through growing up. But also when you look at the numbers, and, and I pulled out some studies here that I really wanted to share with you. So if you look at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and you look at the number of cases that are being filed of harassment and discrimination. Mm-hmm. In 2018, there, so the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission gets cases from all over the nation. They found that they reported that there were over 76,000 cases filed of discrimination and harassment and wow. retaliation. 
they collected over $505 million for aggrieved parties. So that's a huge number. And in 2019, it went down a little bit. Now, these numbers that I'm telling you, the reason why it's so important is that when we look at statistically what's going out in the workplace, three out of four people don't report these incidents. So you can mm. triple these numbers to really get an idea of what's going on in the workplace, of the uncivil behavior that's going on in the workplace. So mm -hmm. when I started my business, I knew right away that I wanted to do something to, it didn't make sense to me. It's like, wait a second, I know lots of good companies that are doing, they have policies in place, they're doing, they have the attorneys, they're doing workplace investigations. So why aren't these complaints going down? And that what I concluded was that it's incivility, that we need to really address the root cause of the problem, which is helping people understand what behaviors are acceptable and what behaviors are not acceptable in the workplace. And it sounds easier than it is, but during our discussion, you'll see there's actually a lot of different components that go into it. And I'm only doing one piece of that. I'm really focused in on training, but mm -hmm. I also do, I do some workplace investigations too, but really my 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 area where I feel like I can make the most impact. And I think what employees really need, especially right now with COVID and the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, to be honest with you, I was saying the same thing before all this, right? Mm -hmm. I started my company two years ago. I've been talking about the same thing since. And there's lots of people that are out there doing this. But I think right now, there's just a lot of fear and uncertainty and people really need that guidance. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like with your experience of, actually doing the investigations it's it's probably serving you much more than maybe someone else who has that um dual experience sounds like you're able to go in internally and actually understand like what are the behaviors that might be causing some sort of conflicts moving forward and what have you learned and i'm assuming it's probably somewhat case-by-case -case basis because every company is different mm -hmm. but as far as just common behaviors what have you learned? Just give us a brief kind of bullet point list. So those who are listening might be able to relate and identify that, Hey, this is something that I need to speak up against yeah. because it might be happening in my company. Great question. And, and so I, I, I'll, I'll put it this way. Like I said, um, in civil behavior is a range of behaviors. So there was a study that was done in, this was in 2016 mm -hmm. um, by a, a, a a woman by the name of Christine Porath, and she's in a, uh, a professor at Georgetown. And she did this study and what she found, and again, I just have to highlight, this was in 2016. So <laughs> we're talking about right now, it's a whole different time frame. But back in 2016, when she did the study, she found 95% of the people that were in that study um, believe that there was a civility problem in the workplaces. 70% mm -hmm. of them said it had reached crisis mode, meaning that we need to do something about it right now. It's, it's mm -hmm. like a, a real emergency. We need to deal with it. But this is where I think is really going to resonate with people that are watching or listening to this is out of, you know, what, what really, because when you look at organizations, what do they care about? They care about the bottom line. They care about profit. making more mm -hmm. profit, but also that their employees are taken care of that these are their valuable assets as their human capital, right? So 66% of the people in this study said that because of the incivility that they were dealing with, they were not able to do their work, that they were cutting back their production levels. They were, these things were interfering with their ability to be successful at work. 
80% of the people said that they spent a lot of time actually worrying about the incivility. So now this was impacting their work. 80% of the people said that. And then 12% of the people actually said they left the, the workplace altogether. Mm-hmm. So that just, and, and one other thing, one other thing she noticed was that even people that were not dealing with the incivility, so there were bystanders or witnesses to the mm-hmm. incivility, said they were significantly impacted. So when I look at studies like this, along with how the lawsuits haven't cut back, the business cases for why we need to do something different, I go to leaders all the time and I say, of course you care about making sure we address these issues. And a lot of organizations, I have to say, they do try. It's just that I think that they're they're putting band-aids on the situation and they're not really looking at how to address the incivility within an organization. So depending on where you are on the spectrum and whether it's intentional or unintentional or unconscious, you have to look at your organization and create a holistic plan to address that problem. Mm. How could you bring something like that, such as an issue that you're having within your organization from an individual level? Because it, I'm assuming there's probably a lot of courage you, you have to go through in actually speaking up to higher forms of leadership. Yeah. But is there anything else that you've learned as far as possible action steps that people can take? I, right now, one of the things that I'm talking about, and, and, I'll, and I'll, we'll talk a little bit about why it's getting worse. Right. I, I believe that the reason why it's getting worse is because employees have not felt empowered to speak up about these situations. When I said that statistic about three out of four people don't report, mm-hmm. there are a lot of reasons why people don't report what's going on. One of them is because they fear retaliation, right? They, they're afraid that if I say something, and this happens in a lot of organizations, institutional betrayal is, is, is there's no, we can't argue against it. Where a lot of times people speak up and then now the organization betrays them or mm-hmm. alienates them. So now they feel even more isolated than they did before they spoke up. A lot of people don't speak up because, I mean, I've, in my trainings, I've had people raise their hand and say, Sage, I hear what you're saying. I hear that I should speak up, but I'm not going to because I need that paycheck. I can't, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, right now in the Bay Area, you've got dual income families that are barely making. So there's a lot of people don't speak up because they're afraid that nobody will believe them. People don't speak up because they don't know what their rights are, what their legal rights are. People don't speak up because they're afraid that people might judge them for speaking up. They might be labeled as a complainer or a troublemaker, some people, it's just not their personality, right? Some people are just like, I'm not going to deal with conflict. They're conflict adverse. And they're like, I'm not going to bring that up. So there's a lot of reasons why people don't speak up. But what I stress, number one, and, and what research shows is that we have to empower the employees to, uh, to know how to speak up, when to speak up, and also how to speak up, right? Because if you don't do it in the right manner, then it's really going to be counterproductive. So Mm. organizations really have to take this seriously because incivility is on the rise. I mean, the statistics I gave you were from 2016. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid to see what's going to happen at the end of this year. So if organizations don't really look at their culture and figure out what gaps they need to fill, and I'll tell you a little bit more about where I think they should be looking, but Mm -hmm. this is something that really needs to be addressed at this point. Mm -hmm. Now is the time to do it. Mm -hmm. Why does 2020 appear to be a worst time compared to 2016, 17, 18, 19? Yeah. I mean, there are so many reasons, right? Our pandemic (laughs) that we're currently dealing with is a big thing. We've never dealt with that. Mm 
Um, but also there are, we, uh, Pew's Research Center is kind of where I go to get statistics. They found that America is gonna be the most heterogeneous workforce that we've ever seen over the next 25 years, right? So we're gonna have a lot of diversity in the workforce. So if you're not prepared to deal with diversity, Diversity can bring a lot of benefits to the organization. The business case is pretty clear, but um, it can also bring challenges to an organization. So we need to teach people how to navigate through those differences instead of just shying away from it and saying, you should just know that we're different and, and deal with it. That doesn't work. We need to learn how to navigate and build relationships. So that's one reason why incivility is on the rise. The other thing is, COVID, right? So right now mm -hmm. people are working from home. A lot of people are working from home. So that removal from the workplace in and of itself creates a lot of these remote working arrangements creates isolation. You're not having the same kind of communication where you can pop your head into somebody's office and say, hey, how you doing? So people feel like they're isolated and they're not part of a team. That mm -hmm. creates instability. Also, I mean, let's be real. It's a lot easier to tell so, so, tell somebody or say something insensitive over a computer versus face to face, right? It kind of <laughs> you put your heart down and you mm -hmm. you have more courage to say things that you might not say in person when you can do it virtually. So you see a lot of cyber bullying cases that are popping up right now because people have more strength and courage to speak up. They're just not doing it in the right way. So that's another reason why. The other thing is the generational thing I was telling you about. We've got five different generations are gonna be working together in the workforce at the same time. People need to know how to communicate between generations because there's a lot of negative biases that go along with the different generations, right? You look at somebody that's a baby boomer versus a millennial. There's a lot of differences there that need to be negotiated. Also stress and fear, you know, mm -hmm. when we're, you're dealing with a lot of stress, I mean, people are dealing with homeschooling their children and they're still expected to work eight hours a day. Like that kind of stress and fear of what's going to happen next month. All of these things are going to create incivility in the workplace. And so absolutely needs to be addressed by organizations. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of really good points that you bring up. One of them is the kind of unconscious bias aspect mm -hmm. of it. And that's some of the relationships that I'm sure I'm even a part of right now and always questioning, what am I not seeing? Is it possible for me to be discriminating in situations that I may not be aware of? Yeah. And so that goes back to, I think, challenging the past and unlearning what you thought you knew once upon a time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge part of it. And, and to be honest with you, until that Starbucks case came out last year, you might've heard mm -hmm. about it in April of 2019. Did you hear about that case? Where I think so. There were like two African-American men that were- Trying to use the bathroom, I think it was. At a Starbucks, mm -hmm. yeah, and they called the police and Starbucks shut down. I think it was nationwide, they shut down 8,000 stores and they, they trained over 175,000 employees on unconscious bias. That was really where it came to everybody's attention. I mean, I learned about it when I was at UCSF Medical Center working there, but unconscious bias, you know, I mean, it is an area that organizations, that's one of the things that I was going to mention is- they really need to make sure that it's it's not, um, you have to have effective training, diversity and inclusion training, and, and unconscious bias has to be a part of that because you people have their own biases. It's normal. There's nothing wrong with it. We're hardwired through our own lived experiences, our mm -hmm. upbringing, 
And people need to know, start, actually, they need to have the tools to learn what those biases are. Look, mm-hmm. I'm not a brain person. I'm not a brain expert, right? But I deal with behaviors in the workplace. And I can tell you a lot of the cases I worked on, I really question where these cases of somebody was just had an unconscious bias and then they said something and it was a microaggression. That person might have not intended to harm that person, but it came out. And so if organizations and managers know how to deal with those situations and intervene, as well as bystanders, we could really mitigate those cases from escalating and turning into conflict later on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to take a slight transition from everything that you just talked about. And because I think in, in regard to the unconscious bias, that's actually going to be a big portion of what you choose to uh, facilitate a conversation around for our upcoming event. The thing that you mentioned earlier, as far as diversity. So I've been very curious to learn about that subject because in my opinion, it's so much more than race. It's it's diversity of thought, diversity of ideas. How do you view uh, diversity? What does diversity actually mean to you? Sure, and and this is um, you know again, I I where I've seen organizations fail on this issue because I've worked mm-hmm. with a lot of different organizations. They do put money into their diversity efforts, but the way that diversity that I look at it is twofold. One is your identity diversity, right? That's what you are born with, your color of your skin, your race, are you abled, are you disabled, right? Your, you know, um, your religion. These are things you're born into, you're born with, they're identifiable, we can see those. That's where organizations are spending their money is on those kind of diversity efforts. But there's another piece of diversity, which is your cognitive diversity, your diversity of thought, the way that we communicate, our personalities, how we resolve conflict, all of these issues that are unique to the way that I might handle a specific situation. That's the piece that's missing, in my opinion, or that not missing, but needs to be addressed more. And that's one of the reasons why I went about it the civility way. And and that's why I decided to take the civility approach, because a lot of the training I do talks about how do we resolve conflict? How do we communicate better? How do we lead people that are all different? You know, a lot of leaders think they can have one approach to everybody, but when you're dealing with six different people that have different identities and different ways of thinking and different personalities, you have to have a flexible leadership style. You can't just have one approach. So Mm -hmm. one thing I think organizations really need to focus more efforts on is that cognitive diversity piece. Mm -hmm. So how would you answer this scenario? For example, Let's say I'm an organization and I'm looking to hire X number of people as part of the staff. Every organization, I think, has its own set of criteria or different things that they look for. So let's say in in the case of this organization, they're looking for quality of thought, diversity in perspective, diversity in ideas, as well as all the other things, as you mentioned, that you were born into. Mm -hmm. And it just happened to be so that at the end of the day, there are either none or maybe very limited number of people of color. In society, that's perceived, in my opinion, as discrimination or racist. Mm -hmm. But in reality, that may not be the case because maybe also the pool of applicants only had a limited number of people when it comes to those who are part of those communities. So how do you, how do you, how do you handle a case like that? Like how, how, how would you view it? 
from a um, outsider perspective when you look at a company of such makeup? Yeah, I mean, it's simple, right? I mean, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. It, you have to look at what is that organization's recruitment efforts? How are they recruiting? Where are they recruiting, right? I mean, you, there's ways that you can change your recruitment efforts. Mm-hmm. How are you interviewing people? What are the skills you're looking for? I mean, I look at job descriptions, right? For example, looking at a job description. Let's say it says something in there like, must be able to lift 100 pounds, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if I'm not going to apply to that job. <laughs> to lift 100 pounds? Not today, not ever, but... But so, so that's going to have an impact. When you look at it on its face, it looks like it's mm-hmm. fair, right? But the bottom line is the, it's going to have a disparate impact on women. It's going to have a disparate impact on people that are not able, right? And mm-hmm. so what I look at when, mm-hmm. I, when I look at something like that, I go back to the organization and I say, is this really an essential function of the job? Mm-hmm. Like there are some jobs where you have to lift 100 pounds. And if that's the case, then you're fine. But a lot of times... They'll call things that are essential functions, but they're really not. So if you're only lifting 100 pounds a couple of times a year, somebody can help you with that. It doesn't have to be an essential Mm. function. You don't have to eliminate that whole criteria. So sometimes it's just about changing the job description and making it so that you get a broader pool of applicants. Also, I think you have to remember, not everybody has access to technology, right? I mean, we all have computers. A lot of people don't. So you can do your look at your recruitment efforts to say, how can I get into these different places where people of color or marginalized populations may not have access to technology. They may not Mm -hmm. be looking. Look at schools and colleges that are not Ivy League, where we know that maybe people of color or marginalized populations may not get there because of systemic racism that's perpetuated over years. Mm -hmm. So look at community colleges, open up like where you're looking for your talent. I mean, when 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 an organization says to me, we've tried and we can't find anybody, I'm like, let me see what you're doing. Cause I bet you I can mm-hmm. find 10 places where we can correct that plan so that you can get more diversity in your, in your mm-hmm. And diversity mm-hmm. is very different than culture fit, right? So I just wanna make that very clear that we're not, sometimes organiza- organizations will say, I'm looking for culture fit. To me, that's just another way of saying, I'm looking for people that are in my affinity group, meaning I'm gonna to continue to perpetuate racism or, or not bring in marginalized groups or that diversity of thought. Cause I just want everybody that, talks like me, that thinks like me, that looks like me. That's just Mm -hmm. perpetuating racism, right? So really looking at the skills, the abilities, the qualifications of the person. So there's actually uh, companies right now that are creating softwares where they take out all of the personal identifying information for somebody, right? So you can't tell if it's a female or a male. I mean, there was lots of research on this. Um, You can't tell where even something like their zip code might give away who they are or mm. what color they are or what race. So there are companies that are outright el- eliminating all that stuff. And then when you get to the final decision maker, that's where the final decision maker will get to see the top two or three candidates. And at least you're reducing the bias from all the different places that might creep in. To the mm-hmm. process. Yeah. I heard about that. A couple of companies doing it when it came to, I think, resumes. And it's actually uh, crossing out like the name portion, for example, because... Yeah. And obviously, if you see a variation in name, your conscious bias is going to kick in. And so you're probably going to, or the chances of you picking one over the other are just that much higher. Absolutely. So putting it through some sort of pool where you eliminate a lot of those identifiers Mm -hmm. and people can just look at what's the critical information. I mean, when you think about resume, it's the address. It's like, why is that even needed? 
yeah. I mean, I get it. Maybe it's like proximity to the job and you can understand that. Okay. If this person lives in the, you know, suburbs or cities, that's like three, three hours away, then they're, they may not be able to get here as easily, but other than that, um, as forms to discriminate against, I can definitely see how that could be used. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a video I show this in my training all the time of an individual named Jose Zamora. And so he applies to like 50 different employers and mm-hmm. he's educated, he's got the skills and everything. And then he applies and he's like, why am I not getting any calls back? So he just changes his first name from Jose to Joe. Same resume, same employer, same experience. And all of a sudden now he's getting all the calls back. Apparently there's some bias with the name Jose versus Joe, mm. right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's research out there that says if you have a white sounding or Caucasian sounding name, you're 50% more likely to get a call back than somebody who's got an Asian or African-American sounding name. Wow. 50%. I mean, I did a training and now we're like totally talking about this, this topic, but it's, it's one that I'm really passionate about, but I did a training on the peninsula and um, I had somebody raise their hand HR person came up to me at break and says, I'm going to share a story with you. And he was Japanese. And, and he's like, I changed my name to James a long time ago because I didn't want to be, you know, negatively impacted because of my name. Nobody, he asked the question in front of me to the whole group and nobody knew his real first name. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty mind blowing. Mm-hmm. The extremes that people are willing to go in order to be able to give, be given an opportunity. I could tell you statistics for days on this stuff. I mean, unconscious bias is a real thing. And this is why I like to take the approach of civility in the workplace, because I don't care what color you are, what mm-hmm. religion you are. One thing we all value is we all want to be treated with dignity and respect. And so I think organizations really, this is what I've been out there preaching, is that we need to make civility a core value for the organization. Right. So we, a lot of organizations have diversity as a core value. A lot of them have inclusion as a core value. And I'm out there saying we also need to make civility a separate core value because the goal of making civility a core value is very different than diversity and inclusion. I think I think the reason why organizations are diversity and um, inclusion efforts are failing is because they're expecting people to get from here to here. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's too much. We need them to get to the point where we're going to say, we're going to tolerate each, we're not going to just tolerate each other, we're going to understand each other, and we're going to treat each other with dignity and respect, regardless of our opinions. And so organizations need to make civility a core value, then they need to define it. What does civility mean to that organization? Every organization is different, just like they define all their other core values. Define that for your organizations. I even go out there and saying, hire a chief civility officer right? Hire someone that's going to be the person that's going to be overseeing all of the training, all of the efforts throughout your organization, put the money behind it, you know, not just lip service, but put the money behind it and really make that an effort. Because what I saw as an attorney is a lot of times people just don't know how to respond. They don't know what to Mm -hmm. do. When somebody says a stupid joke that they they're offended by, they don't know what to say. They're just like, you know, they freeze up or they're just like, oh, I'm sure they didn't mean it or you start making excuses for it. And until you let that person know that this is offensive to you, they're going to keep saying it. They're going to keep doing it. And pretty soon it's going to create it really hard for most people to continue working. It's going to create a hostile work environment for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Sejo, obviously you and I can have this conversation for the next five or six hours on a range of topics as it relates to this, but do you have anything that's coming up that people can be a part of, any events, any workshops, facilitations that people can learn more about civility, diversity, inclusion, uh, challenging your bias, breaking your bias, anything like that? Yeah, so we have Breaking Our Bias conference that's coming up, and that's what, July 29th, right? 26th. 26th. Mm-hmm. And Do not show up on the 29th. You'll be three days late. <laughs> that's going to be really awesome because at that one, I'm really going to share parts of my history, my personal story that really sort of influenced the work that I do right now. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's, it's, it's going to just touch everybody there because it's, it's something that we can all relate to. And especially right now, we're struggling with a lot of people, you know, I have so many white colleagues that are allies, but they're just, they're afraid to say anything. They don't know. And then I have black colleagues that are in the same boat. I think it's just something going to resonate with everybody there. It's going to really empower people to, to understand that we can take control of the situation and really change. And I really truly believe that positive things are going to come out of this situation that we're in. I'm mm-hmm. doing another uh, diversity and inclusion panel. I believe it's on the 24th. Uh, with just a, a great panel of people on dispelling myths about diversity and inclusion. We've done one before. It was a real hit. So we're doing another one. I'm mm-hmm. doing another, um, you know, if you're just on LinkedIn, you could just link up with me on LinkedIn. But I'm doing another, we did a, a, a series called 50 Shades of Brown, really trying to build solidarity between the South Asian community and the Black mm-hmm. community. We did one and it was just a real success. I, I think people really just, it's an area that people were like, wow, we, we're the model minority. We have misappropriated culture. We have all these biases. And so we really tried to bridge the gap between South Asian community and the black community. So we're doing another one of those. So I'm just doing a lot of work in this area. So absolutely would love for people to sign, uh, hook up with me on LinkedIn and stay informed. Plus I also share, I'm a real huge believer in sharing information. So I'm always putting out like good tools and practical guides that people can use to educate themselves on these issues as well. Why is that important to you to share information? I think it's so important because there is so much misinformation and biased information that's out there that I really think that people need practical guidance. And, um, and, and, and it's just a really confusing time. And so I just wanna be able to help people in how they can navigate through this uncertainty that we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you for being a part of this. And I look forward to the event that you and I are gonna be a part of on the 26th. And so the best way for people to connect with you is it through LinkedIn <clears throat> website or what would you recommend? Yeah, LinkedIn is fine. You can go to my website as well. It's um, train extra. It's T R A I N X T R A dot com. Uh, or you can email me, Sejal, S E J A L, at train dot com. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to our future episodes so you can receive all of the latest content. Also, if you like what you heard, consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can hear these inspiring and courageous conversations. Once again, we thank you for listening and we look forward to having you next week.